Last week we heard Paul talk about living looking forward. He said that as Christians we're to live with our attention fixed on things we can't see yet. Paul called it the eternal weight of glory that God has prepared for us. That's a way of referring to the substantial things that will one day replace the insubstantial things that we can see and feel today. And Paul included our present troubles among those insubstantial things. He called them light and momentary troubles. When Paul said that, he wasn't belittling our troubles and our anxieties and our pains. He was saying they will give way to much bigger, more substantial, eternal things. Paul told us we will survive and thrive today by fixing our attention on those eternal things. But that does not mean we're to ignore the present. God also has work for us to do today. And in our passage this morning, Paul talks about the things that move us to serve God today. If you and I are tempted to put our feet up and just while away the time until Jesus comes back, Paul has some things to say to us. As you can see on the screen, our passage picks up at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, and we'll follow this through to chapter 6, verse 2. That's page 1160 in the church Bible. Paul says in verse 11, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, 
For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is God's word. Paul begins this passage with our motivation to live for Christ. In chapter 5, verses 11 to 15. This has two parts. And the first part follows on directly from the end of last week's passage. Remember, the original letter had no chapter breaks and no section headings either. So to get the connection, let's back up to chapter 5, verse 9. Paul says, so we make it our goal to please him, that's Christ, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Paul says part of our motivation to live for Christ is knowing we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He says we are moved to serve Christ because we understand Christ's authority and power over us. Last week we said that no genuine believer will face condemnation at the last judgment, but we will all face evaluation. Our deeds don't earn us a place in heaven, but they will count in heaven. So verses 9 and 10 explain what Paul means when he says in verse 11, we know what it is to fear the Lord. He's talking about Jesus and he's thinking specifically about Jesus' role as judge. Paul wants to please him and he fears displeasing him. And so, verse 11, we try to persuade men. Paul shares the glorious message that God has given him. The message that there is new life and eternal life available in Jesus. And as Paul shares this message, he doesn't do it in an offhand, apathetic way. He doesn't just casually throw the message out. He tries to persuade. He puts his heart and soul into it. Because he knows what it is to fear the Lord. What are we to make of this? Well, the fear of the Lord isn't exactly a popular topic. Go into your average Christian bookshop and you won't find many books on it. And yet, it's a major theme in the Bible. Last week when we looked at the letter of James in the evening, I quoted from Proverbs. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs says, is the beginning of wisdom. And I tried to define the fear of the Lord as never forgetting that he is God and we are not. Whatever else we might say about God, he is our creator. He has authority over us. And we are accountable to him. And if we truly understand that, we will always have a healthy sense of fear of him. Now, if we belong to Christ, our fear will not be the kind of fear 
that makes us hide and turn away from him. That's the kind of fear we have when our sins haven't been dealt with. Healthy fear is different. It causes us to respect and reverence him because we know that he's not under our control. C.S. Lewis helped us with this when he came up with a character, Aslan, to represent Christ. If you haven't read the Narnia books or seen the films of Narnia, Aslan is the lion from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Whatever else Aslan was, he was not a tame lion. The children in those stories could trust him, but they could not control him. However much they loved Aslan, and however much they knew he loved them, they had a healthy fear of him too. They knew he was good, and they knew he was fearsome too. He had a reverence-inspiring, awe-inspiring power. And Paul is showing us we must have a similar fear of the Lord. Sometimes we present people with a pretty neutered picture of God. We're afraid to talk to our children and teenagers about wrath and judgment. Because we say we don't want to frighten them. We don't want to turn them off. And so we end up giving them a God who's about as robust and awe-inspiring as a wet dish towel. It's no wonder they decide that he's irrelevant and boring. It's no wonder they decide that superheroes and science fiction characters are much more interesting. I'm not at all talking about trying to scare children into converting. I'm talking about being clear about God's position and God's power. Being clear that he is not a tame God. We're not afraid to give children healthy fear in other areas. We certainly don't tone down the dangers when we teach them about crossing the road. We teach them a healthy fear of cars. We do the same when we teach them about fire. And the Bible calls God a consuming fire. If it's right to fear busy roads and open fires... How much more is it right to fear God? I understand that we want to hurry to get on to God's love. Paul is about to do that himself. But God's love won't mean very much to us unless we've first grasped his fearful power. Remember what Jesus said. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Isn't it possible we've actually done our children and young people a disservice by presenting them with a God who is ever so lovely And ever so kind, but who has none of the fire and the thunder of the God of the Bible. And what about ourselves? 
How much of our apathy as Christians comes from a lack of the fear of the Lord? One writer has said, fear the Lord and nothing else. Our problem is we're often afraid of everything and everyone but the Lord. We fear how others will react if we talk about Jesus. But Paul fears the Lord and nothing else. And look what that fear leads to in his life. It leads to integrity. We've noticed already Paul's fear of the Lord leads him to try to persuade people. In other words, to share the gospel with conviction. And alongside that, Paul's fear leads him to live a life of integrity that backs up his message. Look down to verse 11. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Put very simply, Paul is saying he wants to be assessed by his day-to-day life. We'll learn later in the book that his opponents took pride in other kinds of credentials, their place in society, the strength of their gifts and personality, and their private spiritual experiences. But Paul says, I want to be assessed on my life. Does my life back up my message? Paul doesn't deny that he has gifts. He doesn't deny that he has private spiritual experiences. He's just saying those are not the most important things. I think that's the meaning of verse 13. Out of our mind seems to be a reference to spiritual experiences. Paul has them. He's thankful for them. But they are between him and God. If we are out of our mind, he says, it is for the sake of God. Paul isn't going to use his private spiritual experiences as proof of his commitment to serving Christ. When it comes to that, Paul wants to be judged by his public life and ministry. If we are in our right mind, he says, in other words, if I'm living a life that's clear and bringing a message that's clear, it is for you. And Paul is our example. We too are to live lives of integrity and service for Christ. And part of our motivation for this is Christ's authority and power over us. That is what the text says. We serve because we know what it is to fear the Lord. Then Paul gives a second motivation for our service. Christ's love for us. Verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The text says literally the love of Christ compels us. If you're using another translation, it probably says that. And the love of Christ 
can be taken to mean either our love for Christ or Christ's love for us. Some people even think that Paul means both. But I think that given the context here, the NIV is right to take it as Christ's love for us. We live to serve Christ because of his love for us. Love that was shown specifically through his death on the cross. This is what stops our healthy fear of the Lord from turning into an oppressive fear. This is what frees us from serving in a way that's frightened and apprehensive. As if God's just waiting for us to make a mistake. We're delivered from that kind of unhealthy fearfulness because we know Christ loves us. We can't doubt it because he stretched out his arms and died for us. Our knowledge and experience of that love compels or controls our whole lives. One writer says, Christ's love is a compulsive force in the life of believers. It moves us. It determines what we do and the way we do it. Look what Paul says about Jesus' death in verse 14. One died for all. Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. He died in the place of others. And his death has the power to save everyone. It is sufficient for all. No one need ever doubt that Jesus' death was sufficient for them. Whatever your sin, Jesus' death is enough to pay for your sin. One died for all, and therefore all died. When you look to Jesus on the cross, you're looking at the man who died your death for you. It's as if you hung there and died the death you deserved to die. Except the one who hung there was Jesus. He died as your substitute. Paul says Jesus' death is sufficient for all. But that does not mean all will benefit from his death. In verse 15, Paul talks about those who live. Only those who respond and put their trust in Jesus' death will live. The way theologians explain it is to say Christ's death was sufficient for all. It is efficient or effective for those who come and put their trust in his death. Christ's death was sufficient for all. It has the power to save every sinner. There's no sin too big that Christ's death can't cover it. Christ's death was sufficient for all, but it will not be effective for all. Not all will be saved by his death. Only those who look to the cross and say, God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Only those men and women will find life through Christ's death. And when they do, they will live for Christ. Verse 15 again. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Christ displayed his love on the cross. 
And when we come to know and experience that that love, it controls our lives. We don't live to serve ourselves anymore. We are willingly and happily compelled by Christ's love. That's what motivates us. Why would we live for anything else? When we can live for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Paul has got started talking about God's love. And now he can't stop talking about it. He goes goes on to include God the Father in the picture. In verses 16 to 21, Paul outlines the Father's work of love through Christ. He says it involves new creation and reconciliation. Verse 16. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The Father's work of love through Christ involves new creation. Paul has been talking about the fact that Christ died for all. And some of that all will be made alive. So, he says, because I understand that, now I look at people differently. No longer from a worldly point of view. In other words, I don't look at people superficially anymore. I don't judge by outward appearances anymore. I used to look at Christ that way, Paul says. I saw him as a blasphemous troublemaker who died in weakness and disgrace. But now I see him for who he really is. The God who will one day judge me and who in love died to save me. And Paul says, seeing Christ differently causes me to see everyone else differently. I don't evaluate them based on their looks, or their ancestry, or their qualifications, or even their charisma and personality. I see them as men and women who can become new creations in Christ. That is what happened to Paul. Back in chapter 4, Paul said, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. That's what Paul has in mind here when he says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. God has made them new in the inside. He's given them a new heart and spirit. Now they can see Jesus for who he really is. Now they can see God's glory in Jesus. This is what Jesus died for, to bring about new creation. Yes, there's still a future day when we'll experience that newness to its full extent. And in the meantime, we're still being renewed day by day. But it's still wonderfully true that when we put our trust in Jesus and his work on the cross we experience new creation. Many of you know what Paul is talking about. There was a time when Jesus was a stranger to you. But then a day came when you knew him to be your friend, your brother, your Lord and your Savior. 
Yes, there might have been a period of months or years when you knew about him. Maybe you gradually became more and more interested in him. You might have been seeking after him for a while. But however much we might come to Jesus gradually, however much we might seem to just slide into faith, there is still a point where we can say the old has gone, the new has come. Things are different now. There has been a transformation in my life. The burden of my sin is gone. The center of my life has changed from me to God. I don't look at life the same way anymore. Jesus called that moment of change the new birth. Paul calls it new creation. It's the same thing. The point here is, being a Christian is not ultimately about behaving in a certain way. It's not ultimately about nodding our heads to certain truths. It's about new creation. Transformation, regeneration, new birth. Those are all different ways of saying the same thing. Moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. And this is something we can't do for ourselves. It's something God does through Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. But his death still has new creation power. Men and women are still being made alive through faith in his death. Maybe you're here and you've been poking around the edges of Christianity for years. You keep on coming to church, but you've never committed yourself to Jesus. You've never come to the cross and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If that's the case, then this morning you can experience new creation. You can move from a life of religion to new life in Christ. Paul says that new creation through Christ is part of the Father's work of love. We should never think that, yes, well, Jesus loves us, but the Father Well, he takes a bit of convincing. He's a bit more standoffish towards us. The New Testament gives us a very different picture. Yes, Jesus does love us, but he's not operating on his own initiative. God the Father displays his love through the work of the Son. Look at verse 18. Paul says, all this is from God, meaning God the Father, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Here Paul mentions a second aspect of the Father's work of love through Christ, reconciliation. I grew up in Northern Ireland, and if you grew up in Northern Ireland, you knew what the word reconciliation meant. It was in just about every political speech and just about every nighttime news bulletin. It meant Protestants and Catholics needed to stop fighting and make peace. They needed to stop blowing each other up 
and get on friendly terms. Now, if we take that idea and apply it to God and us, it's just a little bit different. In Northern Ireland, there needed to be reconciliation between two groups that were roughly equal in size and power. But it's not like that with us and God. He is our maker. He has the power to do as he pleases. You and I are creatures, and we have very little power. Don Carson likes to say that our biggest problem is God. We are rebels, and God stands against us in wrath. That's a big problem for us. It's the biggest problem we will ever face. Of course, many people aren't even aware of their problem. But that doesn't change anything. Our biggest problem is God. Because of our sin, there's hostility between us and God. We are unreconciled. And we are in the infinitely weaker position. God could end us with a thought. But look what Paul says. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. The whole situation was our fault. It was our problem. But through his son, God brought about reconciliation. He made peace. How did he do it? Paul says in verse 19, by not counting men and women's sins against them. The reason our sins are not counted against us is because they're counted against Christ. They were put to his account, and he has paid for them. That's how there can be peace between us and God. There's a song that says, O love incomprehensible that made you bleed for me. The judge of all has suffered death to set his prisoner free. At the cross, God provided his own solution to our God problem. And in doing so, he showed amazing love. Paul sums it up in verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is one of the central verses in the whole New Testament. It's central because it sets out the heart of the gospel. Jesus was the sinless one. Peter calls him a lamb without blemish or defect. That was the requirement for Old Testament sacrifices. They had to be physically pure. The New Testament tells us Jesus was the true lamb. He was the one all the others were pointing to. He was pure in regard to sin. He was without any of the stains or blemishes of sin. Jesus was the only human being who ever has been or ever will be spotless. And God made him to be sin for us. Someone has said these words set out one of the most profound mysteries in the universe. 
and yet we can skim over them so easily. So I'm going to try in a moment to help us avoid skimming over them. But first, look at the purpose of Christ being made sin for us. It was so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might be made right with God. So that we might enter into right standing with God. So that we might have a verdict of not guilty pronounced over us. That's the two halves of verse 21. Christ became sin so we could be declared not guilty of sin. But how do we begin to get at the reality of this? We do it by putting our own specific sins into the equation. Some of you have read Tim Chester's book, You Can Change. You'll know that he encourages us to do this. So let's take verse 21 and make it specific. God made Christ who had no pride to be a self-righteous Pharisee for me so that in Christ I might become humble before God. God made Christ who held no grudges to be full of bitterness for me so that in Christ I might become sweet-spirited before God. God made Christ who had no greed to be a selfish coveter for me, so that in Christ I might become satisfied and generous before God. God made Christ who had no lust to be a porn addict for me, so that in Christ I might become sexually pure before God. God made him who had no hatred to be a murderer for me, so that in him I might become forgiving before God. God made him who had no laziness to be a slacker for me, so that in him I might become productive before God. God made him who had no deceit to be a liar and a cheat for me, so that in him I might become truthful and honest before God. God made him who never complained to be a whiner for me, so that in him I might become content before God. God made him who had no temper or impatience to be an irritable hothead for me, so that in him I might become calm and patient before God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How do we respond finally to this? Well, Paul is very clear what our response should be. Look at the middle of verse 19. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And down to chapter 6, verse 1. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. These verses are often used to talk about evangelism. But that is not the main way Paul intends them to be used. Who is he speaking to here? Christians. Men and women he has previously referred to as holy. Paul is telling Christians to be reconciled to God. He's telling Christians not to receive God's grace in vain. Paul is showing us it's possible to be in some sense alienated from the God who has saved us. There's really no other way to interpret this. Yes, the unsaved need to be reconciled to God. Of course they do. This can be applied to those who are unsaved. But Paul is speaking to Christians. Christians who have forgotten the reality of the fear of the Lord. And the reality of Christ's love. And new creation and reconciliation. And to those of us this morning who have forgotten. Or who are in danger of forgetting these things. Paul says come back. Every moment God's grace is pouring out to you. The benefits of Christ's work. The realities of God's love are streaming to you. Every moment there's a river of blessing and refreshment flowing to you. Come back. Capitalize on that grace. One translation says, we beg you to make good use of God's kindness to you. Embrace all that God has done for you. All that he is doing for you. You and I are prone to wander. Sometimes it seems like every day we're off after some silly scheme, some false promise of satisfaction. We're like dopey sheep some of the time. No offense to you. I include myself. The Bible calls us sheep. Every day you and I need to hear this call. Come back to the one who loves you. Be reconciled to the God who has remade you. Don't waste his overflowing grace. Make good use of it. Live in the richness and the joy and the wonder of it. And let it fuel your service for God. We're going to use our last song as an opportunity to be reconciled to God. The song is How Deep the Father's Love for Us.